get started. Um, thank you for entering this space. My name is Janice Pelaganis. I'm a behavioral scientist and researcher from Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital Institute of Health Professions. I'm co-moderating this session with Dr. B.A. White, who's going to introduce herself in a second or two. Um, B.A., along with our speakers here, have found a passion in health professions education, particularly educating educators, um, and have made it our professional missions to improve how we do this. So, B.A., I'm going to throw the mic over to you. I feel like we need a little applause um, background noise, so thank you so much. I um, am also at MGHIHP with Dr. J, and um, that's half of my life, and the other half is actually in Texas, where I am the Vice Chair for Faculty Development at Baylor Scott & White Health and the Department of Surgery. So I hop in between MedEd and HPE, and I am slowly integrating HPE into MedEd. That's my goal, right? Thanks, VA. So our goal for this room is to allow our students the opportunity to learn from you, to discuss their research completed, ongoing, and future, and then brainstorm um, deeper topics with all of you. So this is a one-hour session. Um, can understand if you can't stay for the whole time. I know it's kind of, it falls at the, you know, quarter after, so um, I'm hoping to end by the hour Um this uh, and we can keep it going if there is some good conversation. Um, in these sessions, our PhD student and advisor, in this case, I'm Cynthia and Alex's advisor, will spend about 15 minutes presenting their research and um, and then BA, the other faculty member, will have about 10 minutes asking uh, questions and then we'll open it up to the entire audience and spend the rest of the time listening to your thoughts and questions with uh, no strict rule to structure because I feel like some of the rooms are pretty strict on their structure. Um, so today we have with us Alex Morton. Alex Morton is a simulation educator for UAB, University of Alabama, Birmingham, clinical simulation. This is under the Office of Interprofessional Simulation for Innovative Clinical Practice. Um, she's a pediatric emergency and intensive care as well as neonatal intensive care nurse and a uh, recent graduate of the Master of Science in Healthcare Simulation from UAB and um, is now a PhD student with us uh, over at MGHIHP. She's also a Team Steps master trainer and by way of her job at UAB, they engage in a lot of interprofessional education. Cynthia Mosher is um, a primary care physician and is now the associate uh, course director in the Department of Clinical Skills Simulation Center at the College of Medicine, Al Faisal University. This is in Saudi Arabia. She is also a graduate of the uh, master's program at UAB um, and is also a PhD student with us at MGH IHP. So today, um, Alex and Cynthia have been working on really understanding online engagement in what we're calling virtual debriefing. Um, and we just recently um, had some uh, conversation around, do we change that word virtual to online synchronous um, experiential debriefings? There's so much going on in, in the world of terminology and online learning. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to you, Cynthia and Alex. Hello, everybody. Um, this is Cynthia, and I am uh, working on this research topic with Alex. We both coming from the University of Alabama at Birmingham, we found that we work very well together and we have similar interests. And this was one of our major similar interests, This um, what we experienced as students in online learning when we were at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and now as we continue our PhD. And one of the big things in simulation is the virtual debriefings that a lot of people had to embrace when we went into the pandemic. So that was kind of the basis of what brought us into this research. And uh, just as uh, Janice said, the term virtual became an issue. So because different people, I mean, there are different ideas of what wording should be used, what terminology. So we're again examining virtual and distance and remote. And all of this comes into now us completing our first research on this and submitting our manuscript for publication. And the title of our research is Factors of Engagement in Synchronous Online Learning Conversations and Distance Debriefing. And this is a realist synthesis review. Um, and it, it's really embracing what the pandemic brought to us and how you know people were dealing or how people were needing to deal with it. And we had to dig into 
research that was conducted prior to the pandemic in different areas of online learning because there was so little information out there in the literature about virtual debriefing that we really couldn't pull from that to try and come up with any kind of idea or, you know, even to think about developing standards for virtual debriefing. So in our research, we, we looked into different fields of uh, learning and um, tried to apply that or tried to think of that in terms of how we are doing virtual simulation and debriefing. And it, it pulled in a lot of different pieces of information related to learning. And when we went into our uh, reviews of the articles that we found, we used the community of inquiry framework and that helped us to kind of connect all the pieces that are involved in all types of learning online that we found to be something that everyone shared and could be applied to debriefing. So we're trying to pull from that and come up with recommendations for online debriefing or remote debriefing or distance debriefing, whichever you want to call it, and try and help people in simulation that are working in this environment and probably in the future as virtual debriefing becomes more more used more often. So that's the focus of our, our first paper, and we have some really interesting findings. And I'm going to let Alex take over now so she because she can share something very particular that we found. Hey, good morning. Um, yes, so thank you, Cynthia, for the really awesome um, introduction. And so just um, to talk about kind of some some big findings that emerged. Um, one of them that we found particularly interesting was this uh, cyclical relationship between internal and external factors of engagement. And so um, particularly how this came about is two overarching themes emerged, which were external factors are outcomes of internal factors. And the second one is that internal factors are altered by the perceptions of external factors. Um, so kind of thinking of the internal factors of engagement as the frames of the learners and facilitators, um, you can kind of start to see a relationship. And so to kind of illustrate this before I dig in more, um, I would like to just give a little example. And so, for example, one internal factor could be that the learner has camera shyness. That's an internal frame of that learner. And so they are hesitant to turn on their video. And so the external factor is that the learner would not turn on their video and the facilitator then has the inability to see nonverbals and visually assess engagement. And so that feeds back into the internal factor where the facilitator's confidence decreases and they fear awkward silence. And then that leads to the external factor of facilitators, um, not the facilitator not asking planned questions to increase engagement because they feel derailed. And so that's influenced their external factor. And um, so as, as we th felt that this was very interesting uh, thing that emerged because it may be that, you know, they just don't know if there are perceptions that are happening of engagement based on things like learners turning their video on or, um, learners turning, keeping their video off or learners remaining muted when not speaking um, and just the kind of the, the rules of etiquette or the reasons why people are doing these things may be different than what the actual perceptions are. And so false perceptions are occurring, which then actually influence the entire session and can really impact engagement based on perceptions of engagement um, and also just um, and, and kind of go into, again, that cyclical relationship. And so um, I we also had 10 kind of themes of behaviors, that uh, behavioral factors that emerged. And um, I'm going to turn it back to Cynthia for this piece. Yeah, so as we were analyzing our uh, the articles and pulling the findings, we found the things that were most commonly occurring in online learning regarding engagement. And from that, we were able to define 10 specific behavioral factors that we felt would be most important based on these findings that would apply towards debriefing and that debriefers should take into consideration when they are doing online debriefing. And just to give an example, um, there was quite a bit of back and forth in some of the papers about whether the use of uh, technology, some of the some of the tools and technology like chat and emoticons and things like this um, would be helpful or not helpful as far as engagement. 
And one of the significant findings was that it can help, but it can also increase uh, cognitive load on learners and even on the debriefer because there's a lot to keep track of when you're online. It's not like sitting face-to-face -face and talking and everything is right there in front of you. If there are people chatting and, and discussing things in the chat and you're also talking into the to the camera and through audio listening to other things around you, then all of that weighs on your cognitive load. So that was a very important thing that we found and included in our our. Um, our 10 factors. And another thing was that something, sometimes the learners really feel like they're just an individual sitting behind a camera and not recognized as a human. And that came up quite a few times. And something simple as addressing people by name can really have an influence on the way your learners engage and interact with you. Um, and we don't tend to take those things into consideration when we're face to face because we feel like, you know, we're all sitting there together as a community, but online it's a little bit different. So we need to take these kinds of things into consideration when we speak to our learners. So we had several things like that and we came up with our, our 10 behavioral factors and I hope when the paper is published, everyone takes a look at it and gives us some feedback on everything that we found and how they can see applying it into their virtual debriefings. So I think this is the time where I hop in with some questions. Um, and before I get started on the questions, um, I, I feel like knowing Dr. J and how she works and knowing a little bit about y'all's research, I feel like there's an image involved here that's going to be in your publication that everybody's going to use in the future. Um, one of the things that I want to take a back step, I want to take a step back for a second and say, I really appreciate how the two of you have come together and you're really building a research portfolio. I think so often whenever people start PhD programs, they have these huge ideas and there's no way that they can do all of the things that they want to do. And it was really smart of you two to kind of come together with this giant idea and be able to tackle a lot of it. So kudos to you guys on that. Um, I guess the, the first question I would ask is, um, are there specific things that you would want our listeners to walk away with, little tidbits that, you know, as they're practicing, they might need? From the perspective of our research, um, I think we have to, I think we have to take into consideration the differences that occur in person and online and try and address those online issues, simple things like use of technology can really hinder engagement online. That was another one of the really big findings. So things like um, preparing your learners in advance and um, an orientation for them so that once you get into your debriefing discussion, everything runs smoothly and having a backup plan in case things don't run smoothly. I think those are two of the very um, important first steps before you consider taking a, a conducting a debriefing online. Alex, do you have anything you'd like to share? Yeah, and absolutely every everything you said and just wanted to add that also um, the importance going into whether you're going in as a learner or going in as a facilitator, um, but particularly if you're going in as, as a facilitator, really trying to go into um, virtual experience that uh, learning conversation experiences with a healthy frame and saying that um meaning that we know just going in with the frame such as we there everybody is is has different comfort levels with um technology everyone has different comfort levels with being on video or speaking in these environments and um just going in with the frame that hey if if i'm perceiving uh that you know, uh, there is disengagement occurring is, um, and I start to feel my confidence waver, for example, um, you know, what is, is the learner truly not engaged or maybe do they just not have their video on as an example? So just trying to go in with a positive frame, um, to any learning experience that you're facilitating. Such great points and kind of watching your own internal dialogue as the facilitator, making sure you're not talking yourself out of things, it sounds like. Um, as far as you guys mentioned some of your key findings, um, are, is there anything separate from, from the tidbits, key findings that you think you'd want for this group to know about? You know, I, I do think, Cynthia, if you read through the, um, the 10 behavioral findings, I think that might be helpful for the audience. Okay, I can do that. Um, well, our first one is to orient yourself to the learners and that it's getting to know the learners and their access to technology. And 
how that can help facilitators when they they come into the debriefing so that they understand each learner that they're they're talking to um, the second one would be conducting an orientation or a training prior to the first interaction because sometimes we assume that people are are comfortable with technology and sometimes they're really not or they think they are and there's a lot more to it because you know, for those of us who are new to Clubhouse, I mean, I know how to use it, but I'm still very new to it. So there's a lot of functionality that I don't understand. And that can easily happen in a debriefing. And depending upon the technology you're using, whether it's on Zoom or it's something else, the learner really may not know how to use the technology. So that's a very important step. And also establishing rules of etiquette and participation, because um, what somebody's used to in some a meeting, for example, just speaking out or blurting out, that might interfere with the debriefing. And if so, if you have an etiquette or a standard of when you want to speak, raise your hand or something like that, it can create a more fluid experience for everyone and not disrupt the engagement for other people in the conversation. Um, and our fourth one was active facilitation and instruction by the educator. And this this was very important because he he or she plays a role in guiding the interaction and encouraging participation and also taking the opportunity to build upon something that someone has added and inject new knowledge into it and and anticipate things along the way that can create a barrier to to engagement another thing that can help in this case and this depends also on your group numbers or how how many learners you have in your group because this was also identified to be an issue in some of the the articles that we reviewed that having a co-moderator can help to facilitate, but sometimes that co-moderator's function is just to, to monitor what's going on in the background, to see where somebody seems to be disengaged, to see if someone's sending a chat so that the, the lead uh, facilitator doesn't have to check the chat and keep track with that. So that also reduces the, um, the cognitive load for the facilitator. Uh, the fifth one was use of video and audio. And I can speak to this personally because I, when I first started considering this topic, I did a, um, an observation of a blended or a hybrid simulation that had a debriefing online and they had learners on campus and they had learners online. And all of the learners off campus had their videos off. So it was very difficult to determine their engagement if they didn't speak up. So that we found that to be very important, and a lot of the, the learners mentioned that to be important, that they engaged a lot more when they could see people's faces, they could see um, nonverbals, they could communicate and re recognize who they're communicating with at the time. Uh, our sixth one was the educator and peer feedback, and this was a very important one for learners. Um, they felt that it was very important to hear from their peers and hear from their educator to give them feedback on what they were saying or what they had done. And it, it enhanced the relationship between the learners and the educators. Because remember, you're, you're online, you're no longer sitting there together in a circle with everyone. So it really helped to increase that feeling of interaction and connection with each other. Um, and I mentioned the limiting the number of participants. And there's a, there was quite a bit of um, differences in what people determined to be the ideal number of participants. And then again, it depended on whether you had another, a co-moderator with you. Um, but it, they also suggested that if you're having a higher number of learners, you might want to use breakout rooms to place people in smaller groups so they can discuss individually and then bring everyone back together again. Um, and then the eighth one was establishing and maintaining a comfortable atmosphere. And that's the simple things, like I mentioned earlier, like welcoming people, calling them by name, sharing personal stories. And we do that a lot in debriefing about sharing you know, previous experiences. Uh, using humor and creating a sense of belonging, something that brings the group together in cohesion. And it, it also helps to create that psychological safety and open up communication and expression between the participants. Um, the ninth one was judicious use of web conferencing tools. And I mentioned that one before because excessive use of chat and um, polls and things like that that are behind the scenes can raise that... Um, cognitive load for your learners and for your facilitators. So you have to be very judicious about what you use and how you use it and how frequently it's used because it can completely pull your learners off into a different discussion separate from the group. And then finally, the role of technology, which we've emphasized before, um, making sure that everyone is well prepared to use the technology and also to have that backup plan so that if things do fail, you can seamlessly switch to another venue or another method of communicating so that it's not interrupted. And that was our, that's basically our 10 behavioral themes of uh, factors. 
I love this list. I'm so glad that Dr. J asked for it to be um, put out there. I didn't know if we were allowed to know about it yet. Uh, I think it's going to be such a great resource for people who are getting set up and really need a guideline and get stressed about how to set up their their facilitation. So that's fantastic. Um, as far as, as future directions, where are you guys going with this? I know you have a lot of plans and I'd like to hear about some of them. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we are actually already kind of starting to move into the next piece um, and which is working on a um, conceptual model uh, for, you know, things influencing engagement in, in this um virtual or online conversation environment. And um, also we are, you know, conducting qualitative interviews. We're kind of doing a similar um, model as before where Cynthia and I kind of approach different perspectives. And so I'm I'm interviewing with um, facilitators who have conducted these experiences. And Cynthia is interviewing with learners who have experienced and participated in these experiences. And, um, kind of using that to to inform our conceptual model. So that's our, our immediate next steps. <laughs> Can I just, I want to highlight, because BA, you had said that, um, you know, the, the fact that they were both able to come in and tackle such a big, um, essentially, it's like a field, it's an art. And, um, and I just want to say how unique Alex and Cynthia have been in their approach to their studies and that, they worked together really well during their master's program, applied for the PhD, um, and as much as possible, I think all of the faculty noticed how well they worked together. We've tried to keep them together in the process, um, and the way they're approaching such a big topic is Alex is looking at it from what educators need to know, specifically focusing on educators' contribution to engagement. And then Cynthia is looking at the learner perspective and what learners, um, you know, can, uh, the effect on all of this on the learners and how they also contribute to the engagement dynamic, which has been really interesting. I would say that our, um, our initial research, which was this realist synthesis, which is a type of scoping review, um, we scanned, oh gosh, you'll have to um, remind me, Cynthia or Alex, how many articles we actually um, screened and included in our in our study. And um, actually, I'll pause there. Do you know off the top of your head, Cynthia, how many total we looked at? Or Alex? Uh, yeah, I'm trying to pull it up. I know we ended up with 18 in the end, but I believe they were. Um, I have the 185. 185. So what we did was, as Cynthia was saying earlier, we looked. We we first started a scoping review looking at um, simulation debriefing online, synchronous online conversations and debriefing following a simulation and came up with kind of meager results and decided, well, everything we're going to learn or can be applied in debriefing is essentially any kind of asynchronous learning conversation. And so we then broadened to all of online learning, instructional design, um, education. So wherever it could possibly be published, we looked at engagement and learning conversations that were synchronous. Um, so that's really what we sifted through. And I have to say that while the findings here, you know, we've, we've presented on some findings, there were some things that were truly surprising and some things that just were not. I, I think all of you that are listening are probably thinking like, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, and I think this, I think the, the, uh, a few really interesting findings for me, um, you know, being in online education for the last decade, it's, I think, were kind of smaller findings within the article. So I think one, Alex, you had un uncovered, which was um, the faculty member purposely intentionally wanted to show like dishes in the background, some sort of messiness in her in her home setting to normalize for her students that, you know, she's human too. Um, so little things like that we found along the way that I thought were really interesting and didn't necessarily come out as themes. And then, of course, this theme of the cyclical relationship of um, how we all um, 
contribute to the engagement and then we make assumptions based off of the behaviors that happen either learner or teacher um, and we then have our own internal frames and that affects our behavior in the conversation and so exactly as Alex said coming in with healthier frames um, for example I think the, the things that I've applied in my practice after doing this study with Alex and Cynthia is um, you know you see people come in and come out of, of sessions especially if it's like an open seminar, open workshop, and instead be thinking like, um, they're not leaving because they're not engaged. They're, I'm so thankful that they were able to come for the amount of time that they could come. Um, if they have their videos off, it's like, okay, well, they're doing busy things and um, they're totally engaged. And I think I think to the sessions that I join and I decide not to put my video on and I'm completely engaged, that that could potentially be happening. And so I think uh, some of the findings that we did present have helped me in my personal practice. And I'm going to stop there because I think the value of this session is um, uh, hearing from the audience. So BA, do you think it's a good time to, to bring up some people from the audience or do you have another question first before we do that? No, thanks for asking. I really do agree with you. I think I want to hear from everybody that's been hanging out and listening. Okay, so now we're going to open up this session to some questions and answers and just any thoughts. Um, please come up, just raise your hand and um, I'll bring you up to the stage and... Any thoughts, any questions, would love to hear from you. If I can just correct myself here about our, our search, um, we initially retrieved uh, 1,468 uh, records and after removal of duplications and screening and assessing for eligibility, we were left with 18 articles and that's what we our review was conducted on. Thanks, Cynthia. And I think, you know, while, while uh, we're waiting for people to raise their hand, no one's really raised their hand yet, I think we could talk a little bit more about the, the work that we're doing currently and where you intend to go in the future because um, I'm, I'm pretty impressed with um, the research agenda that we have and uh, I've been enjoying where we're going. So part of, um, you know, what Alex had pointed out is um, we are working on developing developing a conceptual model on what this actually looks like. And, um, and so we do use, um, uh, we're using a particular method, which is an umbrella kind of method in conceptual development, where we are taking the scoping review findings, we have created a conceptual model. And then, as Alex is saying, um, we, we then interview people to ask, um, you know, to see if this model changes and then uh, run it by experts to see also if the model changes. And then what we would publish is basically the, this entire process of developing this conceptual model. Um, uh, more, I, I think the value of it would be the final model that um, we come up with. And I can speak a little bit to that as well. And Rebecca, thank you for coming up. I'm going to pause here for your question. Hey, thanks so much um, for, um, you know, hosting this space. And Alex and Cynthia, great to see slash hear you guys and, and again. And um, I'm, I'm really interested in your work. I think it's super um, fascinating, super relevant. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I've got, I've jotted down a few things that I wanted to just sort of toss out there and, and ask about. The first one, um, as a speech pathologist, I'm always super interested in um, lexical choices, right? So this whole idea of virtual and I've been doing a project recently where I've tried to try myself to get up to speed with all the different types of um, non-in-person simulation offerings and have noticed myself that virtual is definitely used um, in a couple of different contexts and it's not always clear that people are talking about the same thing. So um, I think it's actually interesting that, that you got that feedback because it, it goes along with um, something that I'd subtly picked up on. And one of the words that was has been resonating with me a bit for this debriefing is tele, tele-debriefing or, um, you know, prefix. So I was curious if that's come across at all <laughs> and kind of what your thoughts are on that. 
I, I can jump in here because I think I've I've probably influenced Cynthia and Alex based off of my my work that I've been doing with Inspire, which is a simulation pediatric group in IPSS. Mm-hmm. Isabel Gross, um, who's uh, part of SSH, um, back you know exactly a year ago, I would say, um, had uh, formulated a group of okay, we need to figure out what we're calling this thing and what it is, uh-huh. and so she. Um, essentially brought together three different groups. Todd Chang what led um, one of the groups, which is the taxonomy group. Um, some of you might be familiar that the Society Simulation and Healthcare just published an, an addendum to um, what we're calling this thing. So all the terminology that we could possibly use um, for the SSH dictionary. And that group um, kind of spearheaded that, that effort. Um, we, after they met, we decided we needed to have a consensus summit to figure out, okay, we all need to agree on what terminology <laughs> we're going to use. Yeah. So Isabel Gross, uh, she then chaired this summit and about 300 of, it, of us came together. And um, I have to say at this consensus summit, we did not come to consensus. In fact, it was, um, everybody has very, very strong um, thoughts around these words. So people did not actually like virtual because they thought virtual reality. People did not like tele because they thought telemedicine. People did not like remote because it reminded them too much of online remote learning. Um, they didn't like online because it could have the uh, perception that it is asynchronous. And what we were really trying to pinpoint was synchronous sessions. Um the the most people did not like the word distance either, but the most neutral term came out to be distance. And so while we know that this term might change as we keep going forward, um, we've been using the word distance simulation in in pretty much all of our ongoing work. And, um, you know, and and so there that also um, there's another scoping review going on with that team. Um, and that's going to in 2023, SSH is hosting a research summit. So we'll be presenting all of the work that we've put together, um, you know, last year, this year, and then going forward up until the summit. Um, more information on guidelines around how to do some distance simulation and what terminology to use. But I have to say, um, it's been a hot debate because people have very strong feelings around certain words. And um, even when Alex and Cynthia and I were uh, looking for external reviewers just to review it before we submitted, um, you know, a few of our reviewers did not like the word virtual. In fact, not only did, did they not like it, they were completely confused reading the entire paper thinking we meant virtual reality. So, uh, which is not what we meant. We meant Zoom conversations. Um, not a headset of any sort. So I think this is a a big thing, so much so that this group, this um, SSH group um, and Inspire IPSS, it's a collaborative of 33 um, simulation societies, um, have formulated a whole new group called the Pictogram Group. And we um, decided, okay, maybe we should make a call out for pictograms that when people publish work in this area, they publish diagrams and icons um, that can explain it, that if you were to write it in two pages of text, which is confuse people because they're going to get tripped up on the word virtual or, you know, whatever. So um, it, it's it's been, it's such a good question, Rebecca. I've talked a lot. I'm going to stop there. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, um, thank you for that. It's, it is really interesting. Um, so, yeah, keep me posted. Slash, I, I vote for Tally. If you, if you need a, a virtual vote, if you want to be my proxy, my vote goes for Tally. <laughs> I get votes. I, I still champion virtual, and I, I just, I think it's a, it's a sexy word compared to everything else. I feel similarly, but I, it's so funny. Like, I, I really, when I hear virtual, I don't even think of VR, but I think it's just because I'm, lazy and only ever call virtual reality vr i never actually fully <laughs> was like would you call facetime virtual though would you call facetime a virtual hmm. interaction hmm that's maybe. a good question maybe. yeah maybe because hmm. we all have virtual meetings now and that's not I- vr 
So I see that Melissa Morris has um, joined us on stage, and Melissa, being a very versed in virtual reality, <laughs> can I ask you, Melissa? I I find this really interesting because um, I, I struggle with the word virtual, and you're calling your debriefing virtual, but you know you could have a virtual simulation and not be distance. I could be in a room with my students doing a virtual simulation with head-mounted displays, and then we might debrief afterward in that room, and that's not distance. So I think you have to be careful of that word. Um, I see virtual as being more head-mounted displays, 360 immersive, and not web conferencing and not distance. So it gets really confusing. And I'm doing a systematic review and having a lot of trouble even with the search terms that we had with that word virtual. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's something just clicked when you said that, which is, I think I tend to um, link virtual semantically to something that is recreating an environment, like a, a natural environment, when really, if we look sort of to the future, this mode of communication is not going to be innovative anymore, right? It's just maybe like you said, Janice, from a distance, but it's not that we're creating any sort of alternative environment per se. It's so true. And I I do, you know, in the consensus meeting, some of the words like online learning remote seemed, um, outdated <laughs> to some people. So uh, it's uh, so great that you said that. I'm, I'm just going to say that in terms of the taxonomy group, the way that they divided um, what distance conversations, distance simulation, distance synchronous learning can look like is that it can be separated by three factors, um, which is geography, time, or geography and time. And then it can also be then multiplied by the fact that there are different roles involved. So there's the faculty member, uh, there is the operator, um, whether it's operation of the online system or, you know, whatever simulation modality you're using, um, and then also the learner. And so there's multiple combinations of this, as Melissa's mentioning. You can have learners all at the center and the debriefer at home or the you know faculty member at home. You could have the operator on site and everybody else is in their own individual locations. What we saw a lot of in the pandemic, at least you know we ran a survey um, with uh, 700 plus respondents, um, was there was a nice hybrid approach that that went on predominantly, which is having five or less students at the center just due to social distancing measures um, and policies, and then the rest would observe online through an overhead camera. So there's all sorts of combinations that that could take place. And this Dr. J, I'm done speaking. I do have a couple other questions, if, but I want to make space for other people too. So, go for it, Rebecca. Yeah. Um, okay, so I was, you know, I really love Cynthia when you talked about cognitive load, and I'm curious, you know, as both an adult learner myself as well as a faculty member who is trying to do these uh, remote virtual teledebriefings um, with some students, um, you know. I think engagement right now in this pandemic is so complex, right? So I, you know, I, I heard the the different, the 10 kind of top tens, um, which I, many of them really resonate with me, but this idea of cognitive load, you know, I just think even when I was listening to you, I you know my daughter came in and interrupted me and I had to go set the craft thing up for her and so forth. And it's not that I don't want to be engaged like a hundred percent, but there are all these like external, additional external factors. Um, then I'm curious if you would do this study once the pandemic's over and whatever our new normal is, if you think you would find the same um, findings. Well, that's very interesting. Um, you mean the same findings if we were to 
look into virtual, well, we're not calling it virtual, distance debriefing. <laughs> um, after the pandemic is over, if it changes the dynamics in any way, is that what you mean? Yeah, I'm just wondering. I mean, and people, you know, people have been online distance learning for a long time now, you know, different programs yeah. are offering it, right? So I, and I, this is obviously not an area I'm familiar with the literature on, but, um, you know, I am, as someone who's living this, feeling like my external extraneous cognitive load is so much larger right now because of all the things I'm needing to balance in my life um, when I am not on site. Um, so I'm just curious if it's any different and maybe I'm just being really um, kind of Pollyanna about, you know, my woes right now of, of needing to <laughs> juggle so many things. But, um, you know, it, is it different? Do people have more on their minds right now or are trying to squeeze more into, uh, you know, multitasking more or, you know, their minds wander much more easily because of other worries that they're having at this moment? Just I'm just curious what your thoughts are. Yeah. That would be an interesting thing to look into. Um, I think for for our research, because it, it was synchronous, and you know, if you look at asynchronous and synchronous, because we came across a lot of that in the, in the studies that we reviewed, the asynchronous side of it allows you to engage and communicate like in a discussion board so that you can do it in your own time and then people will get back to you later. And there were positive and negative things about that. So, um, so in a synchronous environment, you are you are speaking and immediately being spoken to, whereas on the in the in the asynchronous form, in the discussion board posts or any kind of blog, any kind of posting where you do it in your time, which would reduce your cognitive load probably in that setting, it's it's not you don't get the same feedback, so it's a different experience. But in the synchronous sessions, in a synchronous debriefing, which we would normally do. Um, Everything being synchronous and using all the different tools that are that are drawing from your attention, just like you identified. Like if I'm sitting there in a debriefing, let's say there there are six to eight of us, and we have one facilitator, and um, we are all using chat in the background, and we're using emoticons. Those emoticons are popping up, and you're looking to see, and then going and checking the chat to see what people were talking about that made the emoticons pop up. And if you're asked to participate in a poll or to give your feedback on a specific topic that was raised and you have to keep track of those conversations, that's what increases the cognitive load for the learners in these studies. And keep in mind that a lot of these studies that we looked at, these were um, uh, online learning that occurred before the pandemic. So for these learners in particular that we examined the, the and I, sorry, we analyzed the findings of these articles, um, they weren't influenced by the pandemic or the stress of the pandemic. So I, it would be interesting to see how it would apply outside of the pandemic after everything is over with and we're all back to somewhat of a normal life, whatever that will be. But um, I think it's these essential things that exist within online debriefing, uh, using technology and all the tools that are used to facilitate that that can increase that cognitive load. And even for the facilitator, because... If the, especially if the facilitator is alone, they have to keep track of a lot of things, which is one, um, making sure that they're engaging with everyone and they're keeping an eye on everyone through their video cameras or the audio. Um, for example, in a recent meeting I was in, I didn't even, I didn't raise my hand, I didn't do anything, but the indication that I unmuted myself signaled to the facilitator that I wanted to speak. And I decided not to speak. But he still, after the person finished speaking, he still came to me and said, Cynthia, did you want to contribute something? So having to keep an eye on those things definitely increases the cognitive load on the facilitator. And I imagine that will continue in virtual debriefing. So that's why I think these 10 behavioral factors are very important for virtual debriefers. And I'll stop using the word virtual. <laughs> Thank you, Cynthia. Um, so... I see that we have two minutes left to when we end. And so I just made uh, Alex, Cynthia, also a moderator. If you want to continue the discussions, I do have to jump off for a 10 a.m. meeting. Um, so uh, I'm just going to ask really quickly before I ask for final questions. Um, do you have the ability to stay on past, uh, I guess it's 10 o'clock Eastern time? I can stay on for about five to 10 more minutes. Okay. Yeah, same here. Same here. Okay. All right, sounds good. Um, Rebecca, I think you have one more question. We might have a time we might have time to do that. 
Rebecca, I'm not sure if you're speaking, you're on mute. Maybe Rebecca has cognitive load going on over there. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm like, there's brilliant things happening in my house right no. now, but I'm so very I, interested I in this. I knew it. I love it. Love it. Um, did you have a Did you have a final question, Rebecca? Before I end. Oh, my dog. Uh, okay. <laughs> there's um, your dog has a question. Oh um, yeah. So my last question is really around the group size. Um, and I, I heard, Cynthia, at the, um, that you did um, mention that, that it really is kind of varied in terms of what people, um, you know, feel to be the optimal group size and what happens when you don't, um, you know, get that right group. Because I think size can be part of the dynamic. But, um, you know, do you have a preference or a leaning for what the optimal group size is for, of, uh, you know, distance debriefing? I think based on the findings, not my personal feeling, but based on the findings, it seemed to fall somewhere in the range of eight to 10. We had some people saying keep it five or under and others that said 20 or more needs a co-moderator. We had people in, in one of them that we had to exclude. They had 75 learners and it's just, it was, it's impossible at that. Wow. So we, we did reduce our number down, you know, to a specific point that we would not include uh, research that was done with such large numbers of learners because, of course, it's going to compromise engagement. And one of the things that some of the learners said when they were in a larger group was that, and they're talking about probably above 10, you know, 15, 20, that um, it it offered them less opportunity to actually participate and comment and be engaged. They could, they could be engaged by sitting and listening and looking at everybody else, but it reduces the amount of opportunities that you have to participate. Otherwise, you're seen as like one person constantly speaking. You're taking away all the opportunity from everybody else. So the fewer learners, the more chances to participate. It made it more engaging for everyone. Did that answer Great. your question, Rebecca? Absolutely. And I okay. I feel a bit like I'm the person who's talking too much. So um, no, it's fine. Thank you so much. It's great to catch up with you all. And congratulations you're on your work. Thank you so much. Thanks, Rebecca. Melissa, did you have any questions? Uh, no, I, you clarified because you were talking about that your uh, research was from before the pandemic. Yes. Um, yeah. and, and, and I was we were aiming for during, but we couldn't, there was no research out there really. Um, there were a few people that we found who had done, they had published some papers. For instance, uh, Margaret Vicule has done a bit of virtual debriefing, virtual simulation. Um, and comparing self-debriefing and things like that. But um, I think we, what was it, Alex, maybe a total of four articles or five that we could really say related to what we were doing, but it didn't really give us a lot of information to go on as far as behaviors for engagement. Right. And even like, um, an art, for example, one of the articles that we use that do fall, like that I think was probably the most relevant to what we were looking at wasn't actually um, a research study. It was um, more of a more of a like recommendations article. Cynthia, would you agree with that? As uh, I guess is yeah. the best way to call that more of a, a recommendations for practices in light of the pa pandemic uh, type of article. So um, yeah, it was really challenging to find actually more recent studies when, as we were conducting this that. Um, that were, you know, looking kind of directly at what we were, we were trying to examine. Yeah, I, I just find it, um, Rebecca, you had a very interesting question when you talked about the cognitive load of um, during the pandemic, doing distance simulation and distance debriefing. As I was thinking, listening to you, I was thinking that when I go to my office, my cognitive load and my attention for me as, as the facilitator and as a faculty member goes so far, so much lower, like the bar just drops compared to what happens when I'm sitting in my house trying to do the same thing. And I just wonder if, you know, that being in your environment, how much effect it really has on your ability to stay in the moment and engage in what you're actually seeing and observing and how it changes your frames. I think that probably feeds into um, preparing your learners because one of the findings, uh, something that was mentioned by one of the learners was that in her process of coming into her online learning, one of the 
the ritual routine things that she did was donning her headphones. And once she did that, that signaled to her family that she was in a different zone, that she was now in an exclusive community and participating and everything was off limits. And it, it just kind of pulled her out of her home environment and into this virtual debriefing. Mm, I said I wouldn't use that word. <laughs> this distance debriefing or distance learning. And um, it, for her, it was very significant. Once she put those headphones on, she was in a different place. So I think it, it all depends upon how you approach your environment and what you can control. There are some things that you can't control. And uh, another point as far as being online and the psychological safety factor, because if, you, if you're sitting in your, your bedroom and your husband walks in and we can see him walk in behind you and we're all having this conversation of, and that's going to affect other people, well, can he hear what I'm saying? And that will also pull back as well. So there's a lot of different pieces to engaging online. And um, I think it, it's really going to go back to preparing in advance and helping learners to overcome some of the challenges that are there. Absolutely. And I, I've actually been trying to put some of those things into practice. Like we're so used to including things, you know, in a pre-brief and like just sending out links. And I've been trying to, you know, really include things in a preview email as far as, you know, what, what are the expectations ahead of time as far as video and audio and environment kind of security, I guess, is the word <laughs> or is the phrase I, um, I would use. But yeah, I, I've, that's, those are some things after doing this study that I've actually been trying to personally put in practice is getting a in advance, way in advance, and then a, a more recent reminder kind of preview, um, and then reiterate, taking the opportunity in the pre-brief to reiterate some of those things, but that way they have time to prepare. Yeah, I, th I think that's great. I, you know, I will, I'll caveat with um, best laid plans and my six-year-old could care less if I have headphones on or a sign <laughs> that says don't bother me or I'm in the bathroom or whatever you know there, there's there's definitely some just considerations and, and and equity thoughts too about you know how feasible it is to do it all um, so super interesting and um, I really love what you're doing can't wait to see what you uh, end up finding when you you know complete your project. I totally agree, Rebecca, and thank you very much. Thanks, Rebecca. And Cynthia, I'm not sure um, where you're at with time. I personally am going to have to um, hop off here in just a moment. Sure. Did anyone else have any more questions? Great talk. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you all for coming. And um, I hope that when we are, we hoping when we are published, everyone will take the opportunity to read and let us know what you think of the research. Absolutely. Thank Have you. a great day. Have a good day.